This is Reimagining Higher Education, your go-to podcast with remarkable education leaders, sharing personal stories from their experience in and around the sector, including reflection and hope for progress with your host, Dr. Noreen Golfman, former provost and vice president academic at Memorial University in St. John's, Newfoundland, and inaugural member of Studiosity's Academic Advisory Board in Canada. We collectively recognize that this podcast's hosts and guests have recorded this interview from across Turtle Island on the unceded and traditional territories of many nations in what we now know as Canada. We acknowledge past and current custodians of this land. Welcome to Reimagining Higher Education. I'm your host, Noreen Golfman. I am a recovering academic, retired provost, and uh, now Professor Emeritus from Memorial University, St. John's, Newfoundland. And with me today is Anne Buller. She is President Emeritus of Centennial College. So welcome, Anne. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Great. Well, you know, we normally start these podcasts, and I did one myself and was asked the same question, um, to bring an object to this conversation as a way of opening us up into maybe earlier experience you've had that helped shape who you are today. Uh, bring an object that um, helps us understand you as an educator um, something that you might have kept close to yourself all those years um, as president. So I'm curious to see what you what you brought or what you're going to mention. So it's such an interesting challenge to try to find sort of one thing that defines you. But many, many years ago, I had a friend who gave me a small antique compass. And for years, I actually wore it uh, around my neck. It was, you know, three or four inches around and it had that patina of being something old. And she gave it to me because at the time I was leading student success work and she kind of talked to me about how she saw my role as helping people find their direction. But I think the reason it stayed with me and that symbolism of a compass has stayed with me for so long is just because it's one of those things that says you're never really lost. You know, there's always there's always a way through something, even when it's very difficult. It represented I like vintage things and things with age and story. And that's stayed with me. And it's part of how I was an educator was to share stories and encourage other people to share their stories. Um, I think it just as a reminder of uh, of different times, of simpler times, this was the only way you could find a way forward was to find north. And I think that for human beings, finding our own kind of true north. So it just became a symbol for me of things I love, vintage, antique, things with stories. And this notion that um, while you may hold the compass, it doesn't mean you're the only one finding the direction, right? And so there's a lot into it. There's layers and layers of meaning to this vintage compass. And, and since then, many other uh, many others that I've acquired over time. So that's, oh, that's probably one of my favorite objects. Yeah, that's a that's a, a great great concept all around, and far better than a bag of breadcrumbs, I should think. <laughs> Hopefully, it lasts longer, and you're not being followed <laughs> by something that's going to eat you. But exactly. 
What was university like for you as an undergraduate and then a postgraduate? So it's a great question because I think my story is one that's often a little bit overlooked when we talk about higher education in this country. I started at a college, uh, at Humber College here in Toronto. I did a three-year public uh, relations communications program. And it, so that was my only full-time experience in, uh, in post-secondary education was at Humber. And I worked one or two jobs all the way through. I actually loved it because although I had the grades to, the, to get into university, I never saw myself there because of my history and background. University, in my parents' mind, and certainly in mine, was where people who are wealthy and privileged went. Um, I just knew I couldn't afford it. And so it never even occurred to me to look into student loans. I, I just thought, I can't afford it. So I can't afford college if I work hard enough. But it was an amazing experience, partially because of that. It sounds so cliched to say the hands-on experience, but it really was. And I, I really thrived there. I then did both my baccalaureate and my master's degree the long, hard way, which was part-time. So I never lived in a residence. I never had that go away to school uh, experience. Everything was living at home and working at least one uh, job all the way through and then working full time as I did the, uh, the degree completion part time. Okay. So amazing experiences, but not how we typically see a college or university experience profiled in Canada. I suppose, but it must be very, very common. I mean, were your friends, your peer groups following the same kind of path through college and part-time work? Um, so interesting. I would say that most of my class, absolutely. Full-time students, part-time work. There were, again, socioeconomic background between first-year student at college and university, quite different, especially then. And so many of us were, were had to work our way through. And then what was interesting, it's so much better now in terms of transfer credit, but then after a three-year advanced diploma, when I went to university, I was given three credits. Wow. So now there's much more rich and fulsome and respectful, I would argue, um, agreements between the two sectors. But then, particularly in Ontario, it was a little bit, uh, little bit different. So I loved each of the learning experiences I had, but they were vastly different. In what way was university different? So it was funny because I have a I have a friend who went to Smith College in the U.S. and I don't know that there's a, a more polar opposite right. to going to a local college, right? Um, and we would often have this debate because she worked out of college with me. We'd had this debate about the two systems. And I have to say, partially because of always being such an advocate and champion for colleges and sometimes being on the defensive because of how we were referred to in the popular vernacular, I wasn't sure how much university would change me. I thought that I'd be going to learn stuff, but because at college I'd, I'd learned stuff and I learned how to do things, I had a bias towards that. But university was actually quite extraordinary for me because I delved into areas that uh, that I didn't think I would ever study, you know, just because of some of the things you have to do, like logic and reasoning, um, and uh, and some of the English literature courses that I took that just were so rich. I mean, I majored in uh, sociology, as many of us do when we don't really know what we want to be when we grow up. 
Um, but it, it was a remarkable experience. I love the debate. I love the engagement. Again, because I went part-time, so many of my classmates were teachers who were upskilling or, you know, we were such a diverse group. Mm -hmm. We had a few full-time students who were picking up a course they'd missed at night. But I, I mean, I loved all that, that dynamic. And I found that a lot of the professors who taught at night, uh, I mean, there were some exceptions to this, but I, I found they really cared about the fact that we wanted an education. I remember one professor saying, you know, if you want a letter of reference for me to get into graduate school, please know that I'm not going to base it solely on your grades. I know why you're here. I know what you're giving up. I know what the challenges are. So don't be afraid to ask me if your average is a B and not an A. You, like, let, let's talk about that. And I, I thought that was so respectful. And I didn't expect that at a university just because I didn't know what to expect, you know? Yeah, that's a great story and underscores the influence that people have almost accidentally on your career path and, and dreams and expectations, doesn't it? Uh, absolutely. I, absolutely, yeah. I, I wonder whether you recognized at the time that you had leadership qualities and were destined for something, something great. Well, I think that I knew I wanted to make a difference. And people pointed out to me that leadership is often the way to do that. I mean, even in college, when we studied fundraising, it was our class's responsibility to run the United Way campaign for the college. And oh. when, when part of what we had to do in our events class was run the blood donor clinic. So, you know, we had, we had things that gave you leadership opportunities and also were results driven. You either met the targets or you didn't. And so, you know, really real life uh, experience. So I think partially being an immigrant and that early day in a Canadian education system where you're being teased for your accent. Um, and then I think having this just, I think I got from my parents, this fighting for the underdog. I think all of those things kind of led me to want to lead. I had no concept, especially in those early years that it ever would lead to a presidency. Um, and in fact, one, it was one of my mentors who pushed me to apply when he said, tell me what changes you want to make in a college. And I told him and he said, and what job might let you do that? And so I was hoisted on my own petard and uh, it ended up being that. So I knew I wanted to lead. I wasn't sure what that looked like and who knew how far I would go. What, what were some of those changes you were thinking about? In terms of changes in the system, yeah. well, that's so probably a wrong answer. <laughs> <laughs> so I have always believed that education, like that, we have to provide good, solid access to as many people as possible for education, and that excellence is the output measure. You know, we don't have to be. We can stop being so proud of who we let in. And we start being really proud of who graduates. So this notion of access, and that wasn't just about, you know, high school grades. I'm not, I'm not just talking about that, but people like me, the first in their family to go to higher education, people who were new Canadians, people who had 
uh, been marginalized because of indigenous status, because of ability, all of that, like that had been a big driver of who I was. And so one of the things I wanted to really change in post-secondary was our view of that, uh, of looking at, at those groups as people with deficits, instead of saying these are people with great strengths that maybe we're not measuring properly when we let them in. The second was a real notion that I have that leaders aren't born, they're made. So yes, if you're born into the royal family, you may be a princess, king, queen one day. But generally speaking, we all have the capacity to learn leadership skills. And that doesn't mean we're all going to be you know, the person at the front of the room, the person on the stage, the person leading the organization. It means we're going to learn valuable lessons. That's us lead in our community, lead our families, you know, be stronger. And so how do we get more chances for leadership capacity development in higher ed? And it connects to a notion of civic responsibility and service to community, more of that integration. You know, we talk a lot about town and gown relationships, but they can be so tenuous and they can be shallow. <laughs> and I think that there's, there's more that could be done um, so they were some of the things that really drove me. And, and fundamentally, I think leadership should be a contact sport. You know, I think it should move you, touch you. I think you should come out of it with a few bruises and sweating a little, but changed. And too often I heard about lecture theaters with 300 people in it, all doing the same thing on the same schedule, the same way. And it, it just, to me, that broke my heart. And thankfully, it wasn't my university experience, because when you went at night, they were much smaller classes. Um, but I, I just I felt there was so much more we could we could do. And uh, what what barriers did you face along the way of trying to make those changes? Or opportunities, I should turn it both ways. So I think probably one of the biggest barriers is your your messing with, as uh, Peter Drucker used to say, you know, the traditional hierarchy architecture of higher education. And I think whenever you try to do that, you get the buts. Oh, but we can't lower our standards. Oh, but we can't, but we can't, but we can't, because we never have. And I think part of the challenge was to work with the faculty, the leadership teams, the board of governors to say, just because we never have doesn't mean we shouldn't. And so it was, it, the barrier was to say, so for example, one of the things we did at Centennial was bringing a distinction in leadership that was a separate credential students could earn. And part of it was in class. Most of it was you need to go out and do things. You need to capture your learning. So it wasn't a tick box of things that people would do. It was actual, fundamental, honest, true engagement. And we opened it up to, Every student, we did not charge for this because, again, I'm. we try to not make money a barrier anytime we could. So bringing this in to say leadership matters, it should be credentialed, you know, we should pay for it. All of those things are a bit different than the usual financial models of higher ed. So that was one of the barriers. And then I think getting people, and this wasn't a, ballot, a, a challenge per se, um, it was a real opportunity was to get our whole community seized on this notion that we could do more. The interesting thing about the distinction in leadership, we actually had people complete it in the first year we offered it, which stunned me. I assumed it would take at least two years. And in some cases more than that. 
But perhaps one of the most defining moments for me was when our faculty came and said, and our support staff, they came and said, we love what you're doing for students, can we do it? So by the time I left Centennial, we were on our sixth cohort of our faculty and staff engaging and earning a distinction in leadership. So, you know, those barriers of no but, <laughs> I think yeah. it's, it's creating the case for change and engaging people and getting them excited about the possibilities of those changes. Yeah, th this is kind of a hard question for me to even think about because I'm never sure exactly, of, I, I'm partly sure of the answer for myself, but do you think much has changed in terms of that hierarchical architecture in the system in post-secondary college or university? I know you've helped to make changes and I think women leaders in particular struggle to open up the space to flatten some of that hierarchy because we have experienced the ill effects of the opposite uh, too often. But have you have you seen much change? And I say much change because maybe we've seen a little change. I wonder what your thoughts are. So I would answer it two ways. I think we've seen some real change in, for example, the diversification of credentials everything from micro to postgraduate. And I think that diversification has caused the public to engage with us differently. It's caused employers to engage with the sector differently. And I think it's, it's really helped people who are trying to actually get on that first step on the rung of higher ed, or it's helped those who have a fantastic degree but need targeted job skills, right? So I think that's changed. I think things like applied research predominantly at colleges, but we're seeing it more along with the true pure applied research at universities. I think that's changed. When you talk about the structure and the leadership and some of those fundamental things that people hang on to, I think that's been much slower. And I think the thing that breaks my heart a little bit is when leadership changes, when you start to see some of those changes get pulled back, you know, we resort to the comfortable, um, and, and I think that is a shame. I've seen things change in terms of the relationships between colleges and universities, as an example, better partnerships, uh, stronger benefit for taxpayers because students aren't having to repeat, you know, research uh, projects and uh, centers being, having more partners at the table. I think all of that's changed. But I think um, sustainable change in the view of education in a way that will fundamentally upend some of those, the, the anchors people are held by, I don't know that I'm gonna see that in my lifetime. Pockets of it, yes. A movement, even though it's glacial, yes. But you know, when you've seen people come out with really radical things, it's you know it's been a difficult fight and it's always about the sustainability of it over time absolutely um you know i wonder what the experience is like today for students entering college or university how different it, it would have been or it is from our experience where you said you you had a a notion of the university being very elitist. And I, I think that still dominates. I mean, there is an anti um, higher education kind of current 
in our culture, and I say our broadly speaking, I think that's true, capturing some of the resistance to elitist ideas or whatever that might be because of the nature of inequity and um, the slow pace of, uh, of seeing a much more inclusive and accessible world. So there's obviously, Resist, there's a hard resistance to accepting the possibility of higher education as a place for real change. And I get that, but I wonder how much students are aware of that today. Do you have a sense of that from younger people? Well, it's interesting. I, I think, again, it would vary greatly across discipline. Uh, and I think and the diversity of the institution and the and so many factors. I think one thing students, whether they're aware of it or not, but you know, we didn't talk about mental health. When I was a student, part-time, full-time, whatever, no one said, reached out and said, we have a wellness program, we have a mental, none of that was there. And I think these younger generations that are coming up, they're much braver than we, we I would say, are to say, I suffer from this, I struggle with this, because they don't see it in a weakness. They see it as part of who they are and it needs to be addressed. That that was not my experience. We certainly had counselors, but it was not, it was nothing like the, the same thing as now. Sure. And I think I think students today in sort of all levels, like in high school as well, when we look at our view of what technology would do, when I first heard about emerging technologies when I was studying in college and university, you know, it, it was the desktop. I'm dating myself to say I was so excited the first time I saw a fax machine. What is this magic? <laughs> but we could make mistakes and they died. You know, if you did something stupid in high school, you suffered for it a bit, but really then you got on with your life. And I think for everything that technology and social media can do that is positive, I think we're seeing the toll it has taken on the mental health of so many. And I think it has it's actually in a strange way taken us back to those essential employability skills. People have lost the ability to think critically because they chased this demon um, of social media, this connectivity. So that framing, that whole kind of technological impact, I think has so changed what the first year experience looks like. Do the students know it? Maybe, <laughs> but the first the students going in now have never lived without you know technology at their fingertips. I also think there's been a little bit of move away from the lecture and into more engaging kind of work, particularly in smaller universities. And you know even colleges are getting much better at this work integrated learning piece. But I don't know. Students expect it. That's the right. good thing. But I don't know if they knew. It didn't used to be there. It's a bit of a paradox, isn't it? Because the social part of social media um, actually has generated a kind of uh, a sense of the individual as a very isolated cell in a in a digital network. And you know, all the research shows, um, certainly recent research, that students still prefer in-person learning, even that three hundred person class gives them a kind of physical experience that they're denied from this kind of experience. And it, it is, I think, a growing paradox because there is, as you say, the 
the need for connectivity, but it's got to be located or offset uh, that digital connectivity by, by something real and in-person and human uh, breathing the same space. And pandemic, pandemic, of course, has aggravated so much of, of the complexity or the uh, anxiety around connectivity, for sure. I do think, you know, when you relate that to the changes we've seen in institutions, I mean, I gave a talk a little while back about the impact of COVID in terms of, you know, the question was, was post-secondary education in Canada successful uh, in their COVID kind of mitigation strategies and in their, in their getting students back up to the learning environment, all of these kind of things, to the learning outcomes rather. And we, my question, my answer to that would be, I think we did brilliant things in the moment, right? I think that uh, at my own former college, you know, we had a very slow pace of getting courses, never mind full programs online, and all of a sudden, boom, right? But the winners will be the ones who say, what did we learn? What went well? What didn't? And what does this mean for learning going forward? You know, are we going back to everybody on campus? My personal belief is that hybrid is really meets accessibility goals, but also allows for that in-person dynamic, that sense of, of community and spontaneity, right? That kind of right. thing that happen when right. you bump into each other in the classroom with ideas that's often much more difficult online. So, you know, there's, there's COVID has been uh, a defining moment. And if we lose the learning from it, then frankly, shame on us. But I think what we've also seen is this, the story of loneliness and isolation. And I fear that some students are, have lost something in that capacity to engage. You know, they now want to work from home right. um, because of the lifestyle piece. But if you're a single person who did all your university or college alone, and now you're going to do your work alone, I just, I, I worry about going back to my earlier points about civic engagement, about service. You know, we're losing some of that. I, at every convocation I ever spoke at, I would say to people, put down your phone, just five minutes, just put like, just be in the moment. Right. And we're, we're, we're losing that. And I worry about it. Yeah, it, it's definitely worrisome. And I don't know how you, I mean, it's a, it's a runaway train or it's a rocket. There's, um, you know, as with uh, AI and so much that technology is bringing us, um, you can't fight it. We have to learn to exploit the best use of it. And I guess that's a conversation, as you say, certainly following, you know, several years of isolation and the pandemic we're all asking ourselves, uh, it, we're kind of in this living laboratory, aren't we? Following all of that um, at every level, really. What would, you, um, what would you like to see changed for students today, if anything, if we could wave a magic wand or offer a way forward to help and support them? I would have a mandatory, and I know your other question about making changes, every time you say something's mandatory, then you have to duck. Because <laughs> These days for sure, away. yeah. 
Um, but I would have a mandatory course, seven, what, whatever you want to call it, but not a one-off thing. That's about wellness and mindfulness and about, you know, taking care of yourself, getting to know who you are, understanding your strengths. And you, you could make them discipline specific, but I don't think you need to. And part of the reason I feel so strongly about that is we introduced a mindful medics program for our first year paramedic students uh, because, you know, you start learning to be a paramedic and then you're out on the rides and you see some really traumatic things. It's a tough enough program. And then you're suddenly dealing with that. And it was just a, a thing we started doing once a week, led by a phenomenal faculty, totally voluntary. And it was packed. It, I mean, so many students came. We ended up creating a general education credit that students from all different disciplines could attend that was really around this notion. And the feedback from students was extraordinary. And so mm -hmm. I think that, you know, again, with other people, getting to know yourself, doing that exploration. So much of that is a fundamental tenet of education that gets knocked out because we have to do so much in so many years, you know, with so many hours and, and all of those kinds of things. That would be one of them. Uh, I think more opportunities for students to lead, to lead and actually crediting that, acknowledging that, you know, at colleges, we got better at doing prior learning assessment and saying, okay, you worked three years as a bookkeeper, you're coming into accounting, you probably don't have to do these three courses, let's find out. We need to be able to do that with leadership as well. And when I was in Nova Scotia, we did a lot in terms of helping people create portfolios that captured that, captured your leadership narrative. And, and we did a bit of that at Centennial, I kind of brought that, uh, brought that with me when, when I went. It's, it's an odd thing to say more flexibility because flexibility usually means distance, online, you know, all those kinds of things. But I think flexibility in choosing learning outcomes, flexibility in, well, how you demonstrate those. You know, every student shouldn't have to write a 20 page essay. There should be other amazing creative ways that we can find out, have they learned it? Have they grasped it? Do they recognize their own learning? And so, you know, to me, I've been to many a really good lecture, but it mattered when I got to follow it up with some kind of experience that, that changed my mind. You know, the hardest thing to do for anybody, change their mind, help them see that, that world in a different way. And so it goes back to my contact sport. I mean, I really would, I would say, you know, you should have some bruises and dents and a really different sense of self when you come out of education, regardless of the type, uh, the type of it. Oh, I fully agree. Although I, I'm straining to think of how you would teach or talk about being present and mindful to young people, especially in a social media informed age, um, because it's something one comes to, right? Some learns, and how do you mandate uh, a lecture around that? I'm kind of curious about how you get people to pay. I can get it with the medics. I can really see a path there for talking about mindfulness and being aware of oneself through very stressful situations. 
But what about for a science student or an art student or a general student? What kind of approach would, would you take to in a course like that or a lecture like that? So it's, it's so interesting. Um, I'll give you an example. So Centennial College has always been extremely diverse, partially because we're located in Scarborough, which is the, was at the time the most diverse of all of the, the GTA, right? Just a, an immigrant settlement community. And I always thought that as a strength, but then I grew up in highly diverse communities. Uh, right. But I recognize, you know, even in Canada, not everybody saw this diversity as a strength. So when we were looking at, you know, what was our signature learning experience going to be? How were we going to blow up uh, the educational model to do something different? And we started to look at, you know, what are the essential employability skills? And we did some work with employers around that. And, you know, employers in all kinds of different language talked about the ability for people from different backgrounds to be able to work together and to understand. They talked about an emotional maturity that they weren't seeing from graduates. And this wasn't just a centennial graduate. This was just, in, in fact, in many cases, our employers were talking about anybody they hired. This, so they were identifying new types of essential employability skills that in my mind were more about the human aspect of, of us, right? Less about the technical knowledge. And so we turned our signature learning experience into a focus on global citizenship and social justice. And to your point, we had some of the, fam uh, the faculty in our engineering schools and our transportation schools saying, uh, what? <laughs> I'm sorry, what are you doing? I bet. <laughs> and we brought it in in a number of ways. One was we did have a mandatory course called uh, global citizenship from social analysis to social action and with a few bruises we got that through so that was mandated every single student would take it and yes we had some mini revolts absolutely we had people say you're taking us off the tools to learn this um one of the things we found powerful in talking about that was actually bringing some of the employers in. So the mini revolt I had in the School of Transportation, we brought in all of our major training partners and they said to the students, we understand you don't wanna learn about the world. You don't wanna learn about inequality. You don't wanna learn about yourself and your role in the world. We understand that. And this class is going, yeah, that's right, we don't. And they said, <laughs> well, just know that we don't wanna hire you. Uh -huh. so we're looking for employees who can resolve conflict have discussions, who can work at senior levels with countries from all over the world. If you want, if you don't want that, then please know you probably won't work for us. And we had GM, Honda, I mean, we had Lexus, we had significant employers there. And it was eye-opening for the faculty who kind of fomented the little mini revolt, um, and, and also for the students in that class. And more and more, as people in our pilot session Four of the students who took the course in the pilot then spoke at a professional development day for our student leaders and for our faculty and staff. And they talked about what the course had meant to them, to their career goals, to their, to their personal understanding. And that's when we started to see the faculty go, well, I want my students to feel that way. Like it, it was a bit of a surge. Then to your point about how do you, you know, everybody can take a course. I took biology. I remember nothing. How, how do you get it to stick? So we created our global citizenship 
service learning experiences. And these were anywhere from, I think the shortest we did was eight days. They were generally, you know, 14. We had one as long as 18 days. They were co-created by anyone on the college campus and uh, an in-country NGO, an NGO that could be validated. And, you know, that we had checks and balances. And, uh, and we started to send groups of students all over the world, not with a high end from Canada, I have the answers, but as learning experiences. But while they were there, they got their hands dirty. You know, we did everything from some biodiversity in the Amazon. We have done towning turtle hatching in Costa Rica. We have built or helped build rather uh, a shelter for abused women and children in India. We've worked in orphanages in China and in Peru. We've built greenhouses for schools in Peru. And we started a medical clinic in Rohatan uh, that until the pandemic, we'd been for, I think, 12 years in a row, focusing on maternal health, infection control, and diabetes control. So first of all, all of those things, many people don't think college students can or would be doing. But the research, the outcome, these students came back saying, I'm going to volunteer. I want to start my own not-for-profit. I, I, I want to do more, more, more. And it was phenomenal. And then they became, you know, the disciples for this kind of work. Now, again, we paid for these. Money was not going to be the reason that the students couldn't have these experiences. And when they got back to Canada, or we also did in reserve and Habitat for Humanity builds in Canada, when they got back, they had to do a local in-service that could be teaching others about what they learned or could be totally unrelated, but would make a difference in their local community. So from that start of hearing what's needed in this world, how do you get it to drill down? It happened relatively quickly, um, but that's the work. That's the work of transformation. That's the work of changing minds. And, and sometimes it's one-on-one -on -one with, with particular folks who are just I don't see this. I remember one nursing faculty saying to me, Anne, we're graduating nurses. We're not trying to change the world. I'm saying well, you can <laughs> both. Not to mention, let's talk about patient-centered care. Let's talk about this thing happening in your field and how if your students had better understandings of things we're talking about, why wouldn't they be better at their job? Well, that's a great, great, great answer. Great story. Very inspiring. I, I love the idea of taking students from social analysis to social action. I, I I would vote for that as a required course, a required program, actually. I wish we were doing a lot more of that. I mean, when we think about reimagining higher ed, that would be uh, a big focus, uh, I think, or should be. Um, but we're, we're not quite yet there, but certainly your example is quite inspiring, I, th I think, Anne. What advice would you give to the younger Anne? If you, I know it's a, it's a stumper. <laughs> if you knew then what you know now. I think I would tell myself not to be so hard on myself. Um, I was the student who, when I got an essay back in class, would go out and sit in my car and had to talk to myself for 10 minutes before I would look at the grade. And, you know, I would tell me that those grades didn't matter as much as I thought they did, that the learning matters more than the grade. Um, and I would tell myself to be a bit more gentler with myself. I think I would also say, you know, the struggles are worth it for the most part. I don't mean 
terrific, horror, horror, horrific, excuse me. I don't mean horrific things that happen in your life, but the, the slog days, you know, I would tell myself that you get through it. There's a, there's another, there's another side. And I used to have a sign that hung in my office that said, live out of your imagination, not your history. And uh, I think I would tell myself more of that. I mean, my parents often felt awful that they never ever considered that their children would go to university, but that was totally because of where they came from and never about whether they thought we could actually do it, right? And so I think some of that, they were small bags, but they were, it was baggage that I carried. I think I would tell myself to let it go a lot earlier. Um, and, and I think, you know, and I, I say this to leaders I work with now, in fact, to students, there's just a gift when one day you feel comfortable in your own skin. You know, when you, I, I gave a speech recently where I, I started by saying I am bad at many things. And I went through a number of things that I'm really bad at. I am never going to be good at them, but I like them. They bring me joy. They, you know, and we've got to remember to not be afraid to be bad at things, to try them anyway, to stop searching for mastery and everything. Just go do it and enjoy it. And not to be afraid to be last, like be last, who cares? Did you have fun? Did you, did you learn something from it? I mean, yeah, I think there's a gentleness that I, I would have suggested to my younger self that took me a long time. I'm still not there, but I'm much more there than, uh, than I ever thought possible when I was younger. That's probably true for many of us, I would say. I have one more question, unless there's more you want to talk about, I'm happy to do, uh, related to that. What advice would you give to senior leaders today in the sector? Oh, I would. Or I would aspiring senior leaders, both. <laughs> well, for senior leaders, I would say stop using the word transformation when what you mean is you're going to tinker at the edges and feel good about it. <laughs> It's, it's such a frustration. I, I, I just, I cannot tell you that's a whole podcast in itself about sure. the, you know, the shameful things we call transformation when really they're not. Uh, and I would, I would encourage more and more uh, to not bring back the autocratic leadership. I've seen in a few places across this country recently where there's the sense of, you know, the president as champion, as hero, as knower of all things. And I think it's so regressive. Um, you know, we succeeded because we built teams and we built leadership capacity throughout. That's what you should be trying to do. If you're the VP academic, don't try to get your deans just to stay in their lane. Help them to do what their job is well, but to keep pushing, right? have them want to be in your role or at least understand your role so that they are their champions of it. You know, I, I, they're probably my biggest things for senior leaders, make the radical change, do it as part of a, a team. Um, and, and, you know, you'll get farther faster for those who are coming up again. I, I believe you can innovate from the side of your desk. So, there's, yes, there's a strategic plan and a business plan. There's all these things the institution has to do. And yes, you have a job and you can't take your eye off that. That's why you're there. But sometimes if you have a spark, if you have a challenge, don't be afraid 
to look at it and say, I think I have a solution. Let me put this together. Let me try this. Use a pilot project. You know, I look at our some of the student success work I did early, early in my career. And, you know, we had to defund another project in order to invest in that. And it radically transformed our first year student experience. You know, those, those ideas you have, you can run with them. You can try them in small ways before you go ask for the big money. I also would encourage them to have mentors, but to choose them wisely. You know, the most popular senior leaders doesn't mean they're, they're the best. Someone who's, who you don't know very well, but you kind of admire some of the things that they do, reach out to some of them. Don't expect everybody to say yes. But I, you know, I think sometimes we look at mentorship um, as just getting something from someone who's been there before. And I think it can be so much more. I think it can be much more reciprocal than it has been historically. And so I'd say, just like I say, choose your hero, heroes wisely and emulate the best of them. I, I would say the same thing about, um, about your mentors. And I would say to both those groups, if you don't like your work, if it doesn't fill you up, if it doesn't bring you joy, I'm not talking every day because if you feel like that every day, you're on some kind of drug. <laughs> <laughs> Something's definitely wrong with you. Right, something is wrong. But <laughs> generally speaking, you don't have that. You're in the wrong place. You're in the wrong place. And so you need to make some decisions because students deserve us to be at places we love with missions we value fighting the good fight and doing the good work. And if at some point that changes for you, and it's not, I'm not, I'm not talking about if you're having your know, personal wellness issues, that's different. I'd encourage you to go get help. But if it's suddenly the mission and vision just aren't yours anymore, you need to do the courageous and right thing. And that is to leave um, and find somewhere that brings you back. Because students don't deserve you to be miserable in your job. They'll feel it one way or another eventually, and we owe them more than that. Kidding. Well, that's great advice, and um, I wish I had absorbed some of that myself in uh, <laughs> earlier times. But one learns learns how what kind of advice one wants to give along the way, of course, through as you say, uh, highs and lows, failures, and otherwise. Um, but uh, you've given us a lot to think about, and I hope there will be students listening to this because you've you've given some really terrific advice, Anne. Um, anything else you want to add that you think you should have added to a question or a comment? I think I would just say thank you to you and to Studiosity for putting this out there. We need more spaces for frank and enjoyable <laughs> conversations. Um, so I, I really appreciated this morning with you. Thank you. Same here. Thank you so much. Visit studiosity.com forward slash students first for information on the next Students First Symposium, an open forum for faculty, staff, and academics to candidly discuss and progress the issues that matter most in higher education.